Now, we're in Revelation chapter 15, and we're going to do a very quick overview of what we've done before, a review. Uh, We're talking about the great and marvelous sign in heaven. You see in verse number one, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So, first we see the unveiling of the great marvelous sign in heaven. We see this scene. He allows us to see this scene that he describes. What does he see? He sees seven angels, and they're holding seven plagues, which are the, uh, the fullness of the wrath of God. And by the way, that is the great and marvelous thing that he sees, the wrath of God. Um, You say, well, how is that great and marvelous? Well, if your daughter was raped and killed, and you sat in a courtroom listening to uh, the prosecutor and the defense attorney talking about whether or not it happened and how it happened, and if the person who did it was actually guilty, you would probably be grateful when a guilty verdict was handed down, right? And uh, we, we talk about how the love of God, and that's true, and we talk about the mercy and grace of God, and that's true. But you know where that was found? That was found on the cross when God poured out his wrath on his son. That's why there is such a thing as grace and mercy. Someone had to die in order to secure that. So those are not two things that are completely separate. It's two sides of the same cross. The death of Jesus Christ allowed us, what, after his resurrection, it allowed us to have grace. So never let someone push you in the, in the corner as a believer to feel badly about a God who is, uh, who is full of wrath. Because always remember that same God poured out his wrath on his son to provide salvation. And so here they said, man, that's great. Uh, John said it's great and marvelous to see that God is actually getting what he deserves. And that is justice. And so here, uh, he sees this. He sees the angels that are holding these. And then number three, he sees an incredible throng of victors. Last week, we talked about the fact that they were standing on the sea of glass, which uh, literally reflects the glory of God off the throne. It is above the third heaven. It hides the throne of God. And it reflects the holiness of God as well. It is mingled with fire, which reflects the judgment of God. And so we see these tribulation saints literally standing on the holiness of God there in verse number two. Now, the next thing we see is that they've been victorious over the beast. Victorious over the beast. Notice it says, then they had gotten the victory over the beast. And we're going to look at it from several angles here tonight, just at this uh, verse number two. Notice the victory over the political pressure of the beast. The political pressure. Remember how Peter and John in Acts chapter 3, they said... It's, it's, it's okay that we, that we got in trouble with the law it's because we, we ought to obey God rather than man. That we ought to obey God rather than government. That's what they're saying. That political pressure of the beast who is a king that rises up, this great power and takes over all the powers of, of the world. And so they got the victory over political pressure. That's just one part of the beast. And of course, he comes in with flatteries, and then he becomes a dictator. uh, But I I want you to see, it is possible to stand against political pressure, not just in the government, corporate setting, national level, but in a personal level, at your workplace. You're going to see another angle here, but that pressure that's put on, unrelenting pressure. Next, they got the victory over his image. They overcame the religious pressure that's exercised by the beast. The religious pressure, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, where they refused to bow to the image of the world dictator. said, I will not bow. And uh, I want to encourage you as a believer, it's not you by yourself. Every believer has to do this. But there will be a time in your life where you have to stand against what the crowd thinks. Your mom told you this, remember? Your dad. 
if everybody jumps off a bridge, are you going to jump off a bridge? And I say, not again, I can tell you that. <laughs> but you have to learn to stand. And if you're embarrassed to stand, then that, that, that's an area where you need to grow. If you're embarrassed to stand against the crowd, um, whatever that looks like. Here, the pressure was not just, hey, let's all wear the same clothes. The pressure was, let's all bow to the same image. And you know, it's interesting. We always think everybody else is just doing because they think that it's something that great, you know, it's awesome, it's wonderful. Don't you realize they're under pressure too? Don't you realize that everybody that's surround, all the other Hebrews that were in the, in the land of Babylon, they were all under pressure. All the people that were, you know, Babylonian natives, they were under pressure. You realize that people are, there's, there's pressure because the God of this world wants people to worship him and really doesn't want people to worship God. And so that pressure, you, you sometimes think, well, man, everybody's doing it. Don't forget, remember, other people are doing it because other people are pressuring other people. There's some that do it on purpose, but that may help you a little bit to know that if you're swimming upstream, it's, it's because it's harder to swim upstream. There's a lot of pressure that's causing everyone to go down. But in the power of the Lord, you can do it. These tribulation saints stood against the image. The image. Everyone else bowed down and they would not. Uh, number three, they've been victorious over his mark. And uh, this mark is connected with social pressure. Social pressure. Jeremiah, he stood against society. Against a society that was marked by submitting to a false government, false system of religion, worship of false gods, etc. You could go on and on. Jeremiah stood. And remember, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. And you can imagine the tears that these folks had. Do you think that there were any, any kids among these tribulation saints uh, who were despised and made fun of and laughed at, criticized? Absolutely. Just little, little kids. I don't know how long, how many of them made it through or will make it through. But I know that it's not easy to stand against social pressure. It's hard. Because some people want to say, well, I, I can't, I, 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 there's no way I could do that. You're so weird. I don't think God calls us to be weird. But I think God calls us to be willing to be weird. And there's a fine line between that. Being weird and being willing to be weird. And some people say, well, I don't want to be weird. What if God wanted you to be weird? You know what God told Jeremiah to do? <laughs> you don't want to know. To strip down in public. That's weird. That's really weird. I'm not telling you God's going to tell you to do that. But we worship the same God. And we're talking about standing against social pressure. Well, everybody thinks this, that, and the third. Don't you realize that that changes every decade? I mean, and, and now it's every year. Up, down, back, forth, right? You know, you hear people talk smack nowadays like, man, COVID-19, I'll never, I'll never go back. We'll never submit to that again. Well, it's not going to be the same thing again. It's going to be something different. And people are going to lock in like that. Why? Social pressure. It's not easy to stand. And I'm not, I'm not telling you, you know, in the case of COVID-19, it's not the same thing. And I don't know that it's, you know, I think people were just freaked out of their mind. There were some nefarious forces behind. But I think there's a lot of craziness. And notice, this is when the church is still here on this age. I don't think it's going to be the same. But when the church is removed and that influence for good is gone, um, it's going to be a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. And here, this social pressure... Is, uh, is something that they overcame. They got through it. They got over it. They were victorious. Number four, they were victorious over his number. And that's economic pressure. W what, what does that mean? Well, I mean, you got to eat, right? So that means you got to take the job that you, can, that you need to take in order to get. I just, you know, I just took the mark because I needed to provide for my family. I mean, the Lord said you're supposed to provide for your family. You see how what the devil's going to be doing? I mean, people are going to be hungry and starving. And you can watch. Uh, during this time frame, there's going to be mothers who watch their children starve. And that's not going to be easy for any of them. And what's the answer? The answer is take the mark. Stop being so stubborn. Stop being, stop. Do you think that our God in heaven wants us to let our family starve? You can feel the pressure, can't you? Amen. And what are you going to say? 
Well, I mean, we're not going to be here by God's grace. But what would you say if you were a father? I mean, explain that to your wife. You, you see the kind of, we sometimes think that God asks us to do a lot. The tribulation saints are going through great pressures here. It's not an easy thing. And uh, there's some hardy people among this group. And no wonder when they get to heaven, <clears throat> they start uh, praising the Lord. Because it's a very rough time. But I want you to see principle number one here. We're going to look at two principles tonight as we study. Principle number one is this. They actually got the victory by losing their life. Not by beating the beast and the false prophet. If they had remained alive by worshiping the beast, they would have been losers. Losers. They would have lost. They were victors because they lost their life. Now, I don't think they wanted to lose their lives. Who wants to lose one's life? No one. But I will say this. You know why a lot of, a lot of Christians don't have victory in their life, in their walk with the Lord? The reason that they don't have victory is because they are unwilling to die. In a spiritual sense, this is what we're called to do. We get the victory by dying. By dying. You know what they used to tell people uh, back in World War II? They said, listen, you new recruits that are coming in uh, just, you know, fresh off of uh, uh, West Point or coming in out of the, you know, in, inner city of Chicago or the plains of New Mexico. You know what? The best thing for you to do is to consider yourself already dead. Stop worrying about when, you're, when that bullet's going to find you. Stop worrying about if this, this is the day. Just say you're already dead and you'll be able to do what you need to do. That's good advice for the Christian. Very good. You're already dead. You see, the frustrations we have is my life is supposed to be perfect. My life is supposed to be the Garden of Eden. Just me and my, me and my you know, uh, significant other in a paradise for the rest of time. And that's why we struggle. Because doesn't God want me to be happy? Stop saying that. If God wanted Paul to be happy, why did he allow him to get beaten? Why did he allow him to get thrown in jail, shipwrecked? Why did he allow him to get whipped? All these things, what, what was it? It was actually because Paul was trying to honor God that God allowed these things to happen in his life. So you get the victory by losing your life. No, not by committing suicide. Committing suicide, unfortunately, is a great act of selfishness. It's a great act of hopelessness that says there is no hope and I feel sorry for people that get to that point, but I will tell you this, God does care and God does have people around them to help them. Many times people just refuse to listen to it and they go further and further and further into it. He said, thou shalt not kill. That starts with you. You should not kill yourself. It's wrong. Now, it's not the unforgivable sin. The Roman Catholic Church got that one wrong. Right? But, but it is a sin. It is wrong. And so we have, to, we have to keep this in mind. It's not a physical thing. These people didn't hasten their death. It's a spiritual thing. You see, this was actually a spiritual war that they were in. The pressure, though it was economic and it was social and it was governmental and so forth, it was spiritual. Why? We, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. And, and what's interesting here, the principalities and the governmental leaders merge at this point. And we talk about, yeah, you know, that guy's wicked and that guy's horrible. And certainly they're influenced, but there's, it's nothing like what it's going to be then. And uh, how many remember when Henry Kissinger was uh, possibly the Antichrist? Right? You know who that people said that? I, I, I don't know. I don't know why. There were just little elements here and little elements there. But you know, when you are actually fighting the beast... It is still possible for you to win. And the Bible says they love not their lives unto the death. If you want to win in your Christian life, you've got to say, I'm already dead. I'm already dead to my perfect dream that I want for my life, my perfect family that I want, my perfect job, all the stuff that I want. And just put your head down and say, God, you have me here today, and I'm going to serve you where I am right now. And if you can do that day by day by day, then you will get victory. That's principle number one. 
The Bible says, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Now, you've got seven characteristics. We're going to go to number six next. This is letter F. I want you to see the letter F and G. These are the sixth and seventh characteristics. But we're going to talk more about this as we go into the next point. Letter F is they have the harps of God. You notice there, having the harps of God. So God has some harps. They belong to him. And uh, they're using those harps to praise God. People talk about if you get side, you know, sidetracked. Some people do. They talk about how we shouldn't have instruments in church. You know, some there's some extreme people out there, and I understand because there is a, a misuse of instruments. But um, when you get to heaven, there's going to be instruments. They're going to be playing instruments up there. Uh, then he says they're singing. What are they singing? A unique song. A unique song. And that leads us into letter B. He lets us see the scene, and and then he lets us listen to the song. What's the song? The identification of the song? It's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. All right, look at verse number three. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And I want to show you some, I didn't uh, give you any blanks here because we'll go quickly through these. But notice the song of Moses is found in Exodus 15. The song of the Lamb is in Revelation 15. The song of Moses is sung at the Red Sea. And the song of the Lamb is sung here at the Crystal Sea, the Sea of Glass. Uh, The song of Moses is a song of triumph over Egypt. The song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon and the beast. The song of Moses is a song of praise for God's works. And the song of the Lamb is a song of praise for God's ways. Uh, With Moses, they were singing about how God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb is talking about how God brings his people in. Uh, the first song recorded in Scripture is the Song of Moses, and the Song of the Lamb is the last song recorded in Scripture. Uh, the Song of Moses talked about physical deliverance from the enemy, but this song, the Song of the Lamb, is spiritual deliverance from the enemy. And which one would you choose, physical or spiritual? Interestingly enough, uh, Israel, because they were delivered physically, they missed the spiritual side of salvation. So when the Messiah shows up, they said, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom again to Israel? And uh, Jesus certainly was offering them the kingdom, but he was offering them two parts of the kingdom, the physical and the spiritual. They were all about the physical side. Let's beat the Romans up and let's get this thing rolling. But the spiritual side is what they didn't. I would ask you this question. This is a crazy question, so just entertain it as such. If you all were invited tonight to, let's pick the library for church, would you come? That helps you to, uh, to understand how much you were focused on the physical side and how much you're focused on the spiritual side. So, for instance, let's say uh, you lose your house. How much does that affect the strength of your family? It, it, it kind of reveals what's most important, right? So when Jesus came, he offered the physical and the spiritual. In fact, he offered the spiritual as a gate to the physical. And what he did, he, was, he did not play nice. He went directly to the heart and he said, Moses said this, and by the way, people talk about you can't keep the law, not in a, in a spiritual sense, the spirit of the law you can't, but the letter of the law you can. How do I know? Well, Zacharias and Elizabeth, they, they feared God and they kept the commandments. Uh, Paul himself said, as touching the law, a Pharisee, uh, the righteousnesses of the law, blameless. You could keep the physical law from the external standpoint. What does that mean? Well, you, you could say, I've never committed adultery. I've never committed adultery. Many of you could raise your hand and say, I've never committed adultery. Can I tell you what you've done? You have kept that law. 
And then if you add in the, 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 the required sacrifice, then those that you have done, you could make up for it. So in a, a letter of the law sense, you could be blameless. That's what it says about Zacharias and Elizabeth. They were blameless. What does that mean? When Jesus came, Jesus offered the, the, the kingdom of God, which includes the physical and the spiritual side, which includes the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Right? He offered that. Here's what he said. Um, all you have to do is follow my law. Remember what he'd say. You have, heard, you have heard that it hath been said, Moses wrote this, he shall not kill. But I say unto you, by the way, if Jesus wasn't God, how arrogant is he? To say, Moses said, but I say. Who are you? If you're just a prophet, you need to back it down a hair. I say that reverently. If you're God, then it makes sense that you would come. And what did he do? He didn't change the law. He actually fulfilled the law in the spirit of the law. So he was talking about, you said, uh, I've never killed anybody. Okay, have you ever hated your brother in your heart? That's the spirit of the law. You see, the problem that the Israelites had with Jesus was he was going after the spirit of the law. That's what, that, by the way, that's what our biggest struggle as, as Christians I mean, we'll come to church. Okay, okay. I'll read my Bible. Okay. I'll pass out tracts. Okay, ease off. Why? We want to do the physical part. And those things are important. You know what God's after? He's after your heart. Because even David, who did commit murder, was not blameless, who did commit adultery, he had the sure mercies of David. Why? Some people think, well, God just decided to give him the sure mercies. No, because David was a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? He was chasing God. He wanted God. You see, the physical side, people come to church, we all do it, and, uh, or we sit down, like, oh, i got to read my Bible. Yeah, but do you want to come to church? Do you want to read your Bible? Do you want to pray? You say, well, I, oh, maybe not, I don't want to, but I did it. And I understand there's days that you have to make yourself do things that you don't want to do. But if your entire Christian life is just a chain of days of making yourself do things that you don't want to do, you are probably not saved. Why? God wants your heart. He said that with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. The mind is not even, even talked about in Romans chapter 10. It's interesting. It's not that you don't have a, use your brain. It's that God is after that innermost part of you, the wanter. He's after your wanter. And we cover it up with all kinds of stuff. And here, this, 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 this song that they're singing is showing God cut us down to the very wanter. And man, it's going to be amazing. You see what they, what they sing here. Let's talk about that next. The words of the song. Now, I want you to think about this. This is a group of people who've just come through the most unbelievable trauma of any group of people. They've been hunted down like animals by the beast for three and a half years. They have refused to take his mark. They, they're, they're being starved out, but they will not take his number. They're watching. Uh, they're, they're, they can't buy or sell anything. Uh, they're seeing people get arrested and carted off. They're eating whatever they can find. I mean, they're literally dumpster diving. And don't you know that they're going to be the beast is going to be <clears throat> scoping out and 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 watching. He, he's going to have people watching the dumpsters. He's going to have people ready. I mean, these people people are like rats in a hole for three and a half years. That's why he told them to get out and get to the desert and get to the hiding place. But the ones that haven't gotten out there, man, it's going to get rough. They're constantly evading. I mean, this is what they, they try to show in movies. So finally, uh, they've been, for two and a half years, they've been hiding. And all of a sudden, the whole thing comes, I mean, they've been <laughs> praying and begging God and hiding and they're camouflaged and everything. I mean, they're doing their best to escape. And then finally, two and a half years in, they get arrested and they get dragged down. And now they find themselves standing in a line. Revelation 20 tells us that the me method of execution is beheading, decapitation. And so now they're standing in a line watching people get decapitated in front of them. And it's their 
daughter, and now they see their husband's head drop to the ground. And next up, they put their own head on this blood-spattered, soaked piece of, you know, block, whatever it is. This, is. this is what they've been going through. You say, this is a horrible thing. It is a horrible thing. And guess who's doing it? Humans are doing it under the influence of Satan. By the way, it's a very satanic thing when people are raping and, and, and uh, beating and cutting and starving. If you, need, if you need to know who is helping to push Hamas forward, it's Satan. You, you can watch what's happening. You can see it in the Old Testament all the way through. The Jews have been persecuted. God's people have been persecuted. Are they perfect? No, they are not. Are they saved? Most of them are not saved. But they're still God's people from a biological standpoint. And he has his eye on them. And so these folks are going through all this. Now, having gone through these, these horrible, tra this traumatic event, right? Listen to their words. They're standing in front of God, sea of glass. It says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, verse 3, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. They're praising God for his works. Someone said they sing, How great thou art, because God manifests, how God manifests himself through his works. Then next... It says, just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. And I want you to see something here as we go through. There's several layers. One is the first uh, part, great and marvelous are thy works. And then the title, Lord God Almighty. Think about this. When, you, when you're praising God, do you give God a title? He likes titles. He likes to hear you call him who he is. And there's a lot of titles for God. Sometimes when we pray, you know, we use the same words for God over and over and over again. And we got, you know what that is? It's vain repetition. Why? Just think about it. If you're talking to someone, how are you doing, Joe? Joe, you know, you're my favorite friend, Joe, and I really love you, Joe. And boy, it's great. Did you watch the game last night, Joe? Joe, what did you think about that game, Joe? At some point, Joe's going to say... I know my name is Joe. You know my name is Joe. Can, can we stop? But I'm telling you, it's like the guy said, I don't pray often, but when I do, uh, when I do pray, I say, Father God, every other word. <laughs> People, you hear him pray. Lord, we pray this. And Lord, and help us, Lord. And Lord, we have... And I, I know you mean well. And I'm not, it's great that you're praying. But are you thinking about what you're praying? You know, a lot of times we have this, well, you know, well, the Lord says, you know, the Holy Spirit takes what I'm going to pray anyhow. What does that mean? God, take the whatever I blah that I throw out of my mouth and do something with it. And you're talking to the, to the God of the universe. Maybe you ought to think about some words. Think about, hey, what would he like to hear? What, what are his names that you could use? They have three short phrases here, and they use a different word for God in each one. Just try it. Try, try saying that to God. It's a way of showing him worship. They said, great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. King of saints. King of saints who just got martyred. King of saints who just got slaughtered. I, I want you to think about this. The contrast of where they came from and what they're saying to God. They sing, someone said, how good thou art. Because of how he manifests himself through his ways, through his attributes. This is the way God is. Uh, what water, what wet is to water, love is to God. It is who he is. All right? God is light. God is love. And that's just the way God is. You know why he does things that he, that he does? Because of the way that he is. It's the habits, it's the patterns. And they're saying, your ways are what? Just and true. Now, I'm telling you guys, this is, this is high cotton. I mean, this is another level. You know when God's ways are just and true for me? When he does things that I know he should have already done. 
And when he finally does it the way it makes sense to me, he's a just God. He's a true God. Notice, these people got here by giving their lives. They loved not their lives to the death. Their heads got chopped off. And they're saying, God, your ways are true and just. Man, that's tough. You know what Job said? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. If you're like me, that seems like beyond. Like, I don't know. Can I just tell you? The same God that gave them the power to do this, if you're saved, he's in you. That capability is in you. And if you're like me, you may think, yeah, maybe some years, millennia down the road, I'll be able to figure out how to do that. You've got to yield to the Spirit. He'll work in you as you allow him to, but he can bring you to that same understanding. To, to say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was the attitude that Job had at the beginning of Job. And that's what these people have as well. Then they say, who shall not fear thee? Here's the title, O Lord, and glorify thy name. The words praise God for his worthy name. Someone said, they sing, how glorious thou art. And why? Because of how he manifests his name through his works and his ways. Through his actions and his attributes. You say, what's the difference? It's understanding that what God is doing is because who God is. And we have to be careful that we don't, don't start worshiping a false God in our own image. We say, well, I like, I like God because of this. And well, you start out. I mean, you have, how many attributes could we go back to the kids tonight and say, uh, let's talk about what God is and what is he like? And we could list out a bunch of things. Let me ask you personally, as a mature believer, let's say you have been around the things of God, could you list more attributes that you know from the scripture by experience of who God is? These people are talking about the ways that he is and his actions, and those things are what give him this worthy name. Worthy name. You know how many businesses... um, sell their company to another company that they, they sell out. They decide, hey, we're done. We're going to, you know what, you know what often happens? Depending on the reputation of the brand that's being sold, they will retain that brand and they will continue selling products, but it's no longer, no one that, that started that company is even connected with it. There's no connection whatsoever. It's just the name. Why? The name is important. It's important in America. We've got some brands that go way, way, way back. Kellogg's, for instance goes way, way back to the 1800s, uh, mid-1800s, when they were, you know, making much different things than they're making now. But we trust the name. Why? Because over the decades, they have had a consistent product that we can trust. We understand what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. Well, that's what makes a name. That's what makes God's name. What he has done his consistency, how you can trust him. Now, the difference is, if you think, well, I'm, a trust, I'm trusting a God who does what I think he should do, you've got to be careful with that, because he will disappoint you. But if you trust a God as revealed in the scripture, you'll never be disappointed. You may be surprised because you didn't realize that he really meant that verse of scripture. You heard that he was like that, but he is really like that. But I can promise you, you study the Word of God, you don't have to worry about being shocked and surprised. He tells you who he's going to be, and he's been consistent. Ever since the beginning of time, this is who God is. And they're praising him because his name is worthy. And they say, who shall not fear thee? Then notice, notice the reason for the song. The reason. What there, you Notice in verse 4, there's... Uh, Three phrases, and each of them begin with the word for. Here's the first one. For thou only art holy. They sing because of the holiness of God. Now hold your place in in 15. Look at 13. uh, Revelation 13. They're singing because of the holiness of God. You know, these folks have been translated from off the earth where billions of people they've watched have worshipped this beast. They watched everybody fall down and worship, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They watched everybody fall down and worship, and they know the character of that beast. Can you imagine the data that they've been collecting? The things they've been watching and understanding about the characteristics of this nasty, satanic beast. They know what that beast is like. 
There's a spirit connected with that beast, and they can feel it and sense it. It's in everything. It's in the logos on the side. It's, it's in the uh, all points bulletin that go out of the speakers all over town or come, up, come down through everybody's phones. Like they can sense the messaging that's, that, that the beast is putting out and the messenger that stands behind it. It's a nasty thing. And watch what it says in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 8 rather. It says, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. They've been watching a disgusting, a a, a satanic and dark, twisted being. And now they're standing on the sea of glass. They're standing on the holiness of God. And they're singing with joy. And they said, thou only art holy. Can you imagine the contrast for them coming from this nasty cesspool of a world and standing at the throne of God? Thou only art holy. When's the last time you got a vision of the holiness of God? You see, we, we talk about how, well, holiness means that we're, we don't do bad stuff anymore. Well, that's not the first thing it means. Holiness means you see a contrast between God and yourself. You can't properly even see yourself until you get a vision of God. It wasn't until Isaiah, in chapter 6, saw the God high and lifted up. His, throne, his, his train filling the temple. And then he said, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. And then he said, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You know what a lot of Christians do? They look around and they say, oh, those persons, that person, that's disgusting. I would never do that. And they feel holier. But you're going the opposite direction. You should start with God, who God is and what God wants. See, if you start with what you are allowed to do or what your church thinks is okay to do or what everybody in your family or your friend circle do, you start, you're going you're gonna to always find a reason why you're a little bit better than them. But if you start with God and look up, the first person you'll notice that's dirty is not all the wicked world. It'll be yourself. It changes how you view yourself. That's the first thing. They said, thou only art holy. When you get that clear vision of God, then you see yourself, who, how wicked you are. And then you say, and I live with a bunch of filthy people. Listen, if you want to be holy, spend more time on the word of God and on your knees. And don't say, Lord, show me the sin in my life. Say this, Lord, show me how wonderful you are. Show me how beautiful you are. Show me how holy you are. And then you know what? Automatically, you don't even have to have the Holy Spirit tell you. You'll know. By the way, that is the Holy Spirit telling you. Why? Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll not speak of himself. He'll speak of me. When Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men. When you lift up the person of God, the Son of God, and you worship Him for who He is, the things of earth grow strangely dim. And then when you look at yourself, you say, man, I am a mess. God help me. But see, what religion can do, religion can say, well, you just need to beat yourself. You've heard of self-flagellation. You, you need to walk on bros, broken glass or walk up the, uh, these stairs on your knees with, with stones, sharp stones, and that will help you cleanse yourself. Yeah, but that's you cleansing you. You know who you need to be cleansed by? By the Lord. So get a hold of the Lord and he'll help you. That's what they're saying here. And then notice they sing because of God's inevitable victory. Oh, I love this. Verse 4. For all nations shall come and worship before thee. In chapter 13, verse 8. It's at all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. But in chapter 15, verse 4, here are these tribulation saints, and they're singing this song saying, all nations shall come and worship before thee. They, they said, Lord, we came from some really dark places down there, but we're glad that there's not a, a city, a town, there's not a region, there's not even anybody under a bridge somewhere that's not going to be required to come and worship you. They see the inevitable victory. Regardless of how many people worship the beast, they're all going to worship God. And they, they know that the culmination of God's wrath that's been filling up is going to lead to something that has never, ever happened on this earth. It's going to happen then. What is that? All the nations of the world are going to come to Jerusalem and they're going to worship Jesus Christ. They're going to bow the knee and they're going to confess him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And they're all going to be required to do that. 
How do, they, how do they know that that's what's coming? Well, I put some verses and chapters in there. Philippians 2, Psalm 2, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 56, Isaiah 66, Zephaniah 2, Zechariah 14, Psalm 24, Psalm 66, 72, 86, 96, 97, and so forth and so forth and so forth. That, they, they say, it's estimated that over half of the Old Testament is talking about what is yet to come in the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And, and, and by the way, if you don't believe that, then you're going to really struggle in the Old Testament. It's going to be really hard. It doesn't make any sense. The best is yet to come. It's going to be phenomenal. The most amazing thing you've ever imagined is, is, is about peace on earth and glory and people happy and nice warm sunshine and, 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 and people dancing and enjoying themselves and eating. All that stuff, you wrap it into one and then multiply it times a billion when the creator of the universe comes down and takes over. And, and it starts with the worship. And they know everybody's going to fall down and worship you, God. By the way, aren't we told one of these days... He's going to come to this planet and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know what that means? Every person that's alive, the person that you look at uh, in, in your town or your family, your, neighbor, your street, and you think there's no way, there's no way, they're hard, they're hard. There comes a point when God says everybody is going to bow. And so that's what they're singing about. Then the last thing they're singing about in verse 4, it says, For thy judgments are made manifest. Manifest. They sing because God's judgment is clearly displayed. What, you know, 6,000 years of human history, man has been defying God. Lucifer has been raising his ugly head ever since uh, we can remember. You understand that there's glory that God deserves, glory that he has not been getting, but glory that he is going to receive. It's coming. I want you to think about how the, the Lord said, go back to chapter 6, if you would. Chapter 6, Revelation 6. We've got to close here. Look at verse 10. It says, uh, 6.10, They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord... Holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And you notice that it goes on to say, there are still people who have yet to be killed in chapter 6. That's the reason why the Lord hasn't judged or avenged yet, because there are still people that are going to be killed. The wrath is not filled all the way up. Okay, I know it's hard for us to imagine, but could it be that the reason why God isn't judging it is because there's more sin yet to be done? Think about it. Injustice in your life. Maybe God is giving them more chance, not just to repent. In some cases, uh, my dad used to talk about feeding the, the, the hog that they're about to slaughter. When it's about time to slaughter, put them in a small pen and just give them corn, 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 corn. Why? Not because you love the pig, because you're going to kill the pig, and you want it to be fat when you kill it. And it, from chapter 6 to chapter 15, there's a change, because they've been saying, how long? And then look at chapter 15. Notice what it says. Thy judgments are made manifest. He is avenging their blood, and he is manifesting his judgment. It, it, the beast and the false prophet are finally getting what they deserve. And it becomes a cause of praise for this group of people. A cause of praise. Interesting what people here are praising about. Praising about. You know, we, we praise God for different things than some of the people in Scripture did. I want you to take you to two places. Psalm 119 and Job 40. Psalm 119. This passage that more than any other passage, explains the heart of David. You want to know what it means to have a heart after God? This, is, this gives you a great picture into the heart of David. Look at chapter 119, verse 53. Psalm 119, 53. Horror hath taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. What's upsetting the psalmist? What's upsetting the son of God, the son of David here? Look at chapter 119, 136. 136. What's affecting 
Rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Verse 139, my zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. And then look at 158. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved because they kept not thy word. How much did David love the word? It really bothered him when people didn't follow his word. That's how much he loved his God and his words. It really bothered him. He cried. He was grieved. He was horrified. And he was angry. But now we see that God is fulfilling it. Revelation 6, these folks are are saying, How long, O Lord? And the Lord is finally judging. Now I want to show you one final principle in the book of Job. The second principle is this. God allows circumstances in our lives to help us see him for who he is. Now we've seen several times that Job, with 42 chapters, mirrors to a certain degree the 42 months of the tribulation. And that Job is a type of the Jew who goes through the tribulation. Well, when we look at Revelation chapter 15, we see the things that they are singing about and saying to God. The all-powerful, sovereign, omnipotent God, who has the power to do anything that he chooses to do, has watched these folks being hunted down, destroyed, starved, and lose their heads. And I want you to think about it. When they get to heaven and they stand on the sea of glass in front of the throne of God, what do they say? Not one of them questions God. There's no mention of them asking God why. No one questions whether or not God is good. How could he be good if he let him go through the tribulation? Nobody's questioning whether he's worthy of being praised after three and a half years of trauma and more. You see, nobody here tonight possibly has ever, has ever possibly, and there's no way that you've endured what these people have, will endure in the future. What they have gone through. And yet when they get to the throne, they are filled with nothing but praise and worship for God. It's amazing. You know, the only question they ask is, is this. In light of who you are and what you done, have done, God, who would not worship you? That's a big disconnect, isn't there? Okay, let's go to, to the book of Job. Job has been through a lot of things similar to what these folks have been through. He had excruciating boils all over his head. He lost every one of his kids, right? His friends come to minister to him. And by the time they're done, he's questioning God. They didn't help. Uh, and, 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 and so what happens? He's asking these questions. And he starts asking questions, 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 questions. And God says, if you want to start asking questions, uh, I've got a few of my own. And so for two solid chapters, 38 and 39, God asked Job questions, right? Look what Job says. Job 40, Job 40 and verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, verse, verse 5, once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Finally, Job comes to this place where he says, you know what? Okay, I was wrong. From now on, I'm going to shut my big mouth and I'm not going to say anything. You know, it's interesting. You ever feel that way about God? Okay, fine. I'm stupid. I'm bad. I'm wicked. I'm horrible. I'm not going to say anything. But do you realize that's not the answer that God was looking for? Why? Because for two more chapters... He continues to ask questions. They were because Job gave a wrong response. Think about this. Get to chapter 42. Now watch. 42. Then, by the way, Job said he was going to lay his hand and not say anything, and I'm not going to answer and so forth, but he answers. Verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. I didn't even understand what I was talking about. Things too wonderful 
for me, which I knew not. Here, I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, this is principle number two. God allows circumstances in our lives not to see ourselves primarily and how we've made mistakes and we've messed up. No, he allows them to be able to see him for who he is. Job is finally seeing God. In chapter 40, what is he saying? I am vile. I, I am this. And I'm, I'll shut up. And I, you're... Now he's saying, I see it. I didn't understand even what I was talking about. But I've heard of you, God. Now I see you. And now I see myself. I'm not, I'm not trying to make your life miserable. You know, I'm not trying to pour salt into your wound here. But can I tell you from the book of Job why you're struggling? This could be a reason. Because even though you know him, you've heard about him, you've never really seen him for who he is. Right? Because if you see him for who he actually is, you would, you would see yourself for who you are, and you wouldn't even think about opening your mouth against God. The issue is not that God just wants you to keep your big mouth shut. No, no, no. He wants you to look at him and see him for who he is. It's not that he wants you to feel a certain way about yourself. No, he wants you to see who he is. And if you can see God, see what he is, who he is, it will, everything else, number one, doesn't matter. And then God will work that out in his time and his way. So my encouragement to you tonight is this. These folks came out of the great tribulation, not raptured out like the church. They got raptured out through the decapitation. And yet when they stand before God, they say, you're holy, you're worthy, you're mighty, you're glorious, God, I love you. All I'm saying is we got to take our understanding of God up a notch. And what we should say is this, Lord, help me to understand who you are and what you want to do with my life. Instead of me trying to play God, help me to see you, God, for who you are. And then let you have your will and your way. You know what Job did? Job returned back to kind of his attitude before his friends came around. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The Lord is good. I'm thankful for what he's done in my life. As we go to prayer tonight, I want to encourage you to pray spiritual prayers.